Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Nice to see a bunch of you online over the last two weeks in the audience for Josie's warm-up shows for Edinburgh. Her new show is called Enchantment and Patreon supporters can exclusively be in a live online audience for that over the next few weeks or next couple of weeks really before the fringe starts. So patreon.com slash bookshambles where you can go to sign up to be part of that as well as support the podcast everything else we do at cosmic shambles lots of exciting things coming up and of course get extended episodes of book shambles every week and that includes an extended episode of this week's show helen chersky is our host this week and she is talking to one of the most acclaimed writers on dinosaurs in the world today that is of course riley black you may have seen her on one of our dinosaur Q&A science shambles live streams that we did during the lockdowns in the past couple of years. Her new book is called The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, which is available now in hardback from your favourite independent bookshop and other bookshops as well, if you're that way inclined. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about it, rate, like, review on Apple Podcasts. Now here's today's episode. Enjoy this conversation with Helen and Riley. <music> Welcome to the Book Shambles podcast. I'm Helen Chersky and today I am going to be talking to Riley Black who is a proper dinosaur enthusiast. She's written lots of books. Uh, you might have come across some of them, Skeleton Keys, My Beloved Brontosaurus, uh, Written in Stone and lots of others and she has been out and about on paleontology field expeditions and she is generally very very enthusiastic about dinosaurs. So we're going to be talking about her new book The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. So Riley first of all how are you doing i'm doing well thank you so much for having me back on it's always good to talk fossils yeah well i imagine that's sort of your life isn't it i i don't know just a bit yeah yeah it's it's sort of like does the dog need to be walked and then fossils once i've answered that question that's that's 90 percent of the day fair <laughs> enough um well so i mean i i i, I this is i mean it's a, it's a lovely book for many reasons but it's very clear what one of the joys of reading it is that you do it's clear that you almost spend more time living in the world of the dinosaurs, perhaps, than this world. Like you're, you write about it as though you're really familiar with it. Um, is that true? Like, where, where, where does your mind? I mean, what, where do you, where do you get? Like, how do you connect, basically, to a past that was so long ago? Oh, I love that question. I mean, part of that comes from going out in the field and actually visiting these places, like getting my boots on those rocks and thinking about, okay, what was this environment like? Who was living here? What did they have to think about or worry about? Um, what was a day-to-day -day life basically like for anything that lived in this formation, in this habitat? Uh, and most of the writing that I do is very journalistic. So it's like, you know, we have a new study, here's what it says, researcher B disagrees with it or agrees with it, whatever it is, like that standard science journalism format. So the book was a chance to do something really different. It's the kind of thing that like, I like to think about. You know, like when we go to a museum or we see dinosaurs in the movies or whatever it is like we want to see them alive so this was really my attempt to be like okay like basically what's in my head what I see when I think about these time periods these places these animals and trying to translate that onto the page 
Now, one of the reasons I like this is I, so I, like lots of people, basically went through a period of being a dinosaur mad kid, right? I had the little yeah. plastic models. I had the book, the big yellow book. It's probably somewhere down here, big yellow book about dinosaurs. And I, and I remember exactly why I stopped being interested in dinosaurs. Um, and it was because basically all there was was books with white pages mm. and a picture and you could read how tall it was, um, maybe where it lived uh, and how big its teeth were. And that was it, right? And and it was yeah. like, well, I can't do anything with that, right? I'm not going to spend my life learning lists. <laughs> and that was what it was like. And I'm kind of curious about where, is it just that, you know, so we're talking, um, to, I don't know, 30 years ago. Is it just that we didn't know enough to fill in the details? Or is it that no one was interested and it was just all about lists? Why why, why couldn't I be a dinosaur enthusiast? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that facts on file approach, right? Like, I remember having those even about living animals for like, you know, it's a great white shark. This is where it lives. This is what it eats. This is how big it is. But like, there's no, like, you don't get to know the animal's behavior. Or you don't get to know like what they do or why. And I mean, a fair bit of paleontology involves that. It's like the whole field of systematics, figuring out like, is this a new species? Where does it fit in the family tree? Like those papers, honestly, sometimes it's exciting if the animal looks really cool, but often you have a partial skeleton. So you have a, you know, few vertebrae, a couple of ribs, like maybe a femur. And it's really all about where does this fit in the dinosaur family tree? And it kind of bores me to tears. Like really, like I come from an ecological background. I want to think about how did these organisms interact with each other? What was the environment? Like all that stuff that we want to know. And I think that information, some of it's been cumulative, like really looking into different areas of science. Like a lot of this book, I didn't read about dinosaurs per se. I read about paleobotany. I read about paleoclimates. I read about like these little things called ostracods, little crustaceans that tell you things about the water environment, what they're doing. So it was really taking that different viewpoint. In a sense, I think as a product of the way science often works in, in the modern world, that we have so many subdisciplines and so many things are very split. And part of what I do as a science communicator and a writer is like taking those various studies and putting them together. Like my career isn't, you know, just divided into one aspect of paleo. It's trying to get the, that big picture. And I think you're entirely right. I think when you're a kid, it's awesome to have those books say like, look at all this diversity, look at all the different sizes and shapes. But literally, like, we want to see them alive. That's kind of like the whole point. It reminds me a bit of, um, there's a book called The Log from the Sea of Cortez. It's one of John Steinbeck's nonfiction books. I actually prefers nonfiction much more than the fiction. Um, but he talks in it like doing this expedition, looking at like tide pools, basically all up and down the California and Baja California coast. And as they're starting to go out there, you know, they'd show up in a town and be like, you know, we're here to study the intertidal organisms of the, you know, they talk in very technical terms. And everyone's like, I don't know what you're talking about. This isn't really interesting and as soon as they kind of drop that and say like we're just curious we want to see what's here like have you seen anything neat lately that resonated with people and I feel like sometimes we need to kind of step off that technical pedestal a little bit and say like you know what yeah curiosity drives this too like we might talk about it in a more technical or specific way sometimes because that's the language of science but like what's behind all that is that we want to know we're curious about these things that there's so much more that never gets on the page for whatever reason well, that's I mean, that's what's great about this book is that you really you sort of it's almost it's almost like watching a soap opera sort of bits of a soap <laughs> opera spaced out in time that it's it's about the the gossipy details almost rather than the 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 science like the scientific facts. I mean, the science is in there. How, so how much and I'm curious because, you know, you write mm -hmm. about these these very specific landscapes and a specific type of dinosaur and it's eating this and it's got parasites I don't I mean I didn't know we yeah. knew that dinosaurs had parasites it's very personal detail 
And how much, how much do we, how much of that do we really know? And how much of that was you kind of using bits and pieces and sort of educated guesswork, if you like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about half and half. And I wrote a whole appendix really trying to lay this out, like sort of what we know, what was filled in, what we don't presently know, but can expect on the basis of all these things. So some of them, like you mentioned, the parasites. So in some cases, like parasites in the mouth of a T-Rex, like we know that they were there because we see the damage. We see these like smooth lesions basically in their lower jaws that are caused by a parasite that still exists today that affects a lot of birds of prey like red tailed hawks and things like that. So we can say, okay, we're pretty certain that this is what caused this and the T-Rex had, had a dirty mouth basically, that they were filthy, filthy dinosaurs. And that's why I love that. I love the readers like, Riley, your dinosaurs are gross. It's like, well, they should be, animals are gross. That's the fun stuff. <laughs> but other aspects like the Edmontosaurus that has lice, We've never found out direct evidence of that in the fossil record, but we know that feather lice and their ancestors were present, not just from fossils, but from genetic evidence. And we know that they must have been eating something and they probably proliferated in a world in which scales and feathers were like the predominant, you know, basically things, environments for them to live on an organism. So that was a little bit of filling in. And it's something that reminds me of this book from the late 19th century called The World Before the Deluge. And there's this illustration in it of an Archaeopteryx flying over this Jurassic forest. And it's meant to be realistic as if you were there, but the Archaeopteryx, this early bird, doesn't have a head because at the time we didn't know what its head looked like. The head was on the fossil slab. It was misidentified as a fish for a number of years before they realized the <laughs> mistake. But in any case, like it was a matter of like, okay, so the artist is gonna put feathers on this bird, they're gonna have them in the air, they have all these conifers and yet, we're not going to have the head on it, even though we know it's a vertebrate, we know it's a bird, we know it must have had a skull and a neck and a central nervous system and all those sorts of things. So even the things that I might call speculative, they're based on something, something that we see in nature that we can infer from what we know about biology and ecology as, as a whole. And I think there's a lot of that in paleontology because we really need our imaginations to envision these animals. If we just say like, well, here are measurements of this bone, well, that doesn't really tell us anything. So it's this comparative science where we're always comparing it to what we see around us now and looking for those connections. So even the things that might seem a little bit further out, it didn't just like pop out of my head because I thought it was cool. I tried to say, stay as close to um, what we understand about how ecosystems work as, as much as I possibly could. Well, it's incredible, isn't it? That, that I mean, one of those things that is, is what you know that will, will stop and blow your mind if you think about it long enough. It does for me is that. So I remember going to um, the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles, right, that downtown thing, and it's kind of it's kind of a weird place to go because it's kind of in the middle of the city and it's this little park, mm -hmm. and you walk into this building and basically it's just skeletons. And I'm sure there's some system in there, but what you see is like skeletons of everything. It looks like they just kind of pull, oh, here's another one, put the put those legs on that thing that goes there. Here's a, here's a I don't know, a bird or a thing. And it but the thing that is the thing that I love about that sort of haphazard skeleton thing is that, that you see how similar they all are. That basically they've all got ribs, they've all got hips, they've all got a thigh bone, too, preferably. You know, they've they've all got vertebrae. Um, and, and, it, and it's actually really striking that for all the diversity of animal life that has ever been on Earth, quite a lot of it has vertebrae ribs. I mean, they haven't, we haven't changed that much, right? Yeah, it's the same basic chassis, you know, at least for vertebrates that live on the tetrapods, like we all have the same basic system and a lot of things that are different. So something like a snake or a dolphin or something like that, they've lost limbs. So it's like, 
modifications of existing features and the modification through loss of some particular bones. And you know, then there's the whole invertebrate world, which is its own thing. And even in that case, you know, there are certain things that are consistent across, like in terms of having an exoskeleton or where your central nervous system is. So that's the wonderful thing about paleontology is that we can look at those bones or those different kinds of fossils and say like, okay, what, what part of the body is this? What kind of animal was it? If we're missing pieces, can we fill it in and show our work in doing that? So that way, if we find out something different later, we'd say like, oh, this is very different from what we assumed. Now we have better evidence. But, you know, especially for dinosaurs, like a lot of the dinosaurs I talked about in this particular book, they come from the end of the Cretaceous. They come from these formations that have been explored for over 100 years. We have dozens of skeletons of most of these. We have a pretty good idea of what they at least look like and how they grew up. But lots of other new dinosaurs, we don't really have that. You know, we're often missing skulls. We're often missing like the bones that we wish that we had to really like nail down what this thing looked like. And that's when we turn to its closest, more complete relative. And that's kind of baked in, but that's something that I feel like we don't show to the public very often. We kind of like, here's the restoration, here's what it looks like. And then when you look at the paper, you're like, oh, this is going to be so cool. Like, what does the skull look like? Well, there isn't one. We're basing it on the, the next thing. And I'm not saying that this is any kind of like scientific chicanery or anything else, but it's a difference between, I think, the way that we communicate the science and the way the science is actually done and in not showing that step that you know we require comparison that we require some imagination in this um i felt i feel like it's a lost opportunity often to really bring people in and talk about like why are we doing this the way that we're doing it because i feel like that it's much more um like audience participation that's a way to bring the public into this and really demystify some of some of what we do well, coming to those frustrations, so we should probably, I mean, we haven't actually said what, what you've done in the book. It is called The Last yeah. Days of the Dinosaurs, but actually it could have been called The First Days of the Mammals, I think. Yes. You're, you're dealing with this, the transition, that it's not just hooray for us and dinosaurs. It is this very specific violent event that, that finished everything off. And um, the thing that I was kind of waiting for as I was reading, and then it sort of wasn't there, and then you kind of say mm. it's not there, is is direct evidence of the impact, like from the point of view of the life, you know, you'd expect some, some burnt bones or something left over. So perhaps just describe why, why you're writing about this transition, like what is it about the transition from, from reptiles to mammals? And then how much it, from the day, the day it happened, what do we actually know? Yeah, so in terms of why I wrote this book, I realized that I was kind of, I kind of yada yada at this extinction in my other works and things like that old Seinfeld joke of, you know, like, you know, dinosaurs were doing fine, yada, 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 mass extinction happened. Like we treated it as so obvious, like this seven mile wide, um, you know, Everest sized chunk of rock slams into the planet. Why wouldn't there be a mass extinction? Only we know that there are other impacts at other times that didn't cause mass extinctions. There's something special about this one. It was really the worst case scenario through and through. And I realized that story, particularly of the recovery that came after, had not been told. We're often so focused on the loss of our favorite dinosaurs, things like T-Rex and Triceratops, that like the mammals that came after, mammals have been around for you know, a while, about as long as the dinosaurs have, but they didn't really get their big evolutionary shot until after the extinction. We never really talked about why. We kind of always treated it as obvious. So I felt like that story had to be told. And I also personally related to it around the time that I was pitching this book and thinking of what I wanted to do next. I was going through some major personal changes. I started going through a divorce. I had just come out as transgender. I felt like the life that I had was kind of like my personal Cretaceous and it very suddenly ended and it was ending in such a way to allow 
a different life to kind of flower forward. And I related to this extinction in that extent of like there being this like stark line between the way life was and what came after. And that life had to end in order for basically what we think of now as the age of mammals, my personal age of mammals, I guess, to really take place. And we've learned so much about this event in the past you know, even five years, even two years, there are fossil sites that like are either newly discovered or that we're finding new things about that really allow us to get this picture of what happened in the first second, the first hour, the first day, the week, month, et cetera, afterwards, where 10 or 20 years ago, we didn't really have that. Like there's been so much research at this point that's kind of hit this critical moment where there's still plenty of mysteries, still plenty of things we don't understand, but at least breaking it down into like how this played out and why a lot of, you know, 75% of species disappeared. We understand that so much better than before. And I felt like particularly in the aftermath, the million years that followed the impact, we have such a better window into that now. And we're learning some amazing things. Like even like I was surprised to learn that like beans, didn't exist <laughs> prior to the impact. <laughs> and these are important plants. They're full of protein. They allowed mammals to get big relatively quickly. And that's something that like we didn't know until maybe two years ago, that like the origin of this really important plant group goes back to the aftermath of this extinction. So there are all these little stories that I felt like I could really tell the, tell the tale of this global event through this almost like kind of pinhole of what happened in Western North America 66 to 65 million years ago. Well, this, I hadn't realised because I grew, I grew up after, sort of mostly after this, but the, the asteroid was only proposed as the cause of the extinction in 1980. And I had sort of, a, you know, there's these ideas that have been knocking around for a few decades yeah. and, they, and then they sort of have that, you know, they sort of grow and grow and grow. But it sounds like that, that was like, oh, that's what did it. You know, was it how how did how long did it take scientists to work this out then or to be sure about it? Oh, quite a while. It, it took until relatively recently, I think, to come to a consensus, even as late as 2010. There's a paper in Science, which is one of your major scientific journals, that had a whole bunch of authors on it saying, like, you know, the asteroid impact is probably what caused this mass extinction. And there are a whole bunch of reply papers that came out after that of scientists disagreeing, saying it could be this or it could be that. And it's really even in the past like 12 years that the story has really fundamentally changed. And some of these competing ideas, like intense volcanic eruptions in prehistoric India, what we know as the Deccan traps, like used to be a competitive or a competing idea for what caused the Cretaceous mass extinction. And now we know it actually did the opposite, that actually assisted life get through the impact winter because all that carbon dioxide, all those greenhouse gases, kept the atmosphere a little bit warmer than they otherwise would have been. So even though volcanic activity has caused mass extinctions in the past, in this particular event, it actually offered life some assistance. So when that, you know, the impact idea was proposed in 1980, it was a huge fight. It was something I think that the public, you know, like immediately latched onto because it's a, it's a fascinating idea. But scientists, particularly paleontologists, felt like, well, here are these physicists and, you know, these geology people who don't understand dinosaurs and they're coming in and telling us like what the answer is. And there are some great books like T-Rex and the Crater of Doom or Night Comes to the Cretaceous that are really about like that debate. And I wanted to take a step past that because we have those books, we have those stories and those documents of like all the scientists arguments and who said what and why and I really wanted to take like okay all this time later you know over 40 years later what do we know what does this look like now and I feel like especially like yeah really in the time that I've been writing this book it had just come together 
that you know we can't say that the impact was responsible for every single extinction like if you're a little like clam living in an ancient seaway that's draining off the continent yes you're going to go extinct for that reason rather but the impact is the main story it's the trigger for this mass extinction that was super important and yeah i felt like there's just that gap like that didn't exist yet we had the meta discussion but like how do we really envision this well, it's clear. I mean, one thing I think that comes out quite strongly from the book is is yeah. that you you make the point repeatedly that that mm. evolution has no inevitable answer. That this is this is like lots of little accidents. There's one big accident, yes. <laughs> but then there's all the other accidents that happen because of accidents that happened before. You know, like limitations yeah. on how big mammals can get. And it's it yeah. it's quite. Um, how does it feel to write? Because I guess as well, you know, with your own sort of personal mm. development through all of this, that. Yeah does it is it does it make it easier to feel kind of not exactly fatalistic but to worry less you know it's just mm. all accidents you know something will happen <laughs> it'll be all right yeah it's funny the way people react to these things to me it, it is a little bit of a memento mori in a sense like because you're talking about extinction and that can like happen you know almost out of nowhere and it can fundamentally change life but to me like the contingent nature of evolution that like there are certain pathways that are open at a certain time and some that close and it's constantly changing that not, not everything is possible and that nothing is inevitable i think that's wonderful because it, it really i think grounds me in the present like even just in my own personal view of how i view life that you know like i'm here out of all the possibilities that could have just like you know the odds were against the fact of me existing and yet i'm here and that's pretty pretty wonderful and that we're here i mean it's something that i try and drive home at the very end of the book it still blows my mind honestly that primates were around and survived this extinction. We often think of mammals kind of being in the background and then after the extinction, they proliferate and to some extent in broad strokes, that's kind of true. But at the same time, like mammals were diverse and doing very well during the age of dinosaurs. They were small, but they did very well for themselves. And the earliest primates we know about, this little thing called Purgatorius from Montana and the Dakotas. Which is such a great name. I mean, it's yeah. for anything, really. But yeah, yes, and, and the timing is perfect. Um, it lived at the same time as T-Rex and Triceratops, and it survived the mass extinction. So if things had just been a little bit different, like basically our primate ancestors might have gone extinct during this mass extinction. And it's not a matter of just like we kind of came after as part of the recovery, like our ancestors you know, ancestors, some of the earliest members of the family we belong to survived. And I think that's fantastic when like, when we know if things had just been slightly different, if that asteroid had been a little bit slower or a little bit faster, or Earth had been somewhere else in its orbit, all these things that had to come together, if that extinction had not even been canceled, but been modified, you know, we might still have non-avian dinosaurs, only we wouldn't be here to witness it. The world would be fundamentally different. So it's, it makes it bittersweet. It's, it's, a, it's something where it's like we feel this loss and we're sad for the dinosaurs and wish that we could see them. But if we could, we wouldn't be here. And I don't know if there's a, a I keep searching for the right word to express it, but it's this kind of like almost inverse point where you can really draw something personal back to this global moment that says something about basically like, just like, isn't it wonderful that we exist, even if we know part of why we exist involve the destruction of something else? It makes me, I always, um, whenever I read things like this, like I've always, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about the excited, being excited about the possibility of aliens and life on other mm -hmm. planets mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. And I always, I always, uh, I mean, I think, I think there probably are some somewhere. I don't think we're ever going to meet them because they're too far away. But I also yeah. think that there is this very self-centered assumption that they're going to be 
at the same stage of evolution, able to have a conversation mm -hmm. with us, basically. Yeah. No one ever mentions that perhaps they might be just bacteria or mm -hmm. they might all be, I don't know, giant worm-like things, or they might never ever move past the worm-like things because of conditions on their planet. You know, like mm -hmm. it, it sort of adds a whole thing to what, you know, an alien is the past as much as it's the present. I guess that's what I'm saying. You know, that if you were ever going to meet aliens from another planet, they would have to be at this exactly the moment in their evolution that mm -hmm. allowed them to have a conversation with us, which just adds a whole other layer of unlikeliness. Yeah, if you think about something... aliens as well as dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do as well. Like, I certainly like think there is alien life somewhere. It, see, it seems like there has to be, really. But like, our only frame of reference is what exists on Earth right now. And it's possible that like, we're not even going to recognize alien life when we find it because it might be so fundamentally different octopuses. from sort of what it's all we about expect. the octopuses yes i mean that's my <laughs> vote for who would be like after us really they're just gonna hang back and <laughs> they're gonna have to take over eventually <laughs> but yeah it's it really it makes you think about these big questions and that's why i love about the past in deep time is that you know, from the time that we're kids, like, yes, of course, dinosaurs and fossils are interesting because many of them are big and have sharp teeth or interesting spikes or whatever it is. But in that fascination, you get a couple of big ideas very early on that really shape how we understand like the universe and our place in it. And that like, you know, deep time exists that like the world and the universe has been around for a very, very, very long time. Like, an, like we can say the number, but it's hard to comprehend even how long that's been. And that during all that time, you had lots of different species that were evolving, that basically all life is connected going back to a common ancestor. Basically you can follow that thread from any starting point through all these different species that have all changed through time. And most of them, 99% of them are extinct. So even just looking at a dinosaur skeleton, like those three big ideas you get almost immediately that like time is like almost immeasurably vast, that evolution is reality, that extinction is a reality. And that's some heavy stuff to learn early on, but it's all important. It all feeds into this view like, okay, like how do we understand how we came to be in this present moment? Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. There are moments, one of the things that's interesting about, is I think you can get flickers of it if you're lucky, because, I mean, so obviously, as we've discussed, animals fit into niches and you get, you know, they, they, mm -hmm. they, they, there are reasons to think the things dinosaurs did are the same as current animals did. But I, I can't remember quite, I think I was in South America years and years ago and there was a, a, a flock, I don't know what you call it, of rears, like big yes. bird things, right? And I, could, I was far enough away that I couldn't see them, but I could see them running across the landscape. And it looked, of course, it looked exactly yes. like the movies when they have <laughs> flocks of dinosaurs, because what they did was they looked at the birds and they designed mm -hmm. the dinosaurs, right? It actually went the other way around. But just those little moments where I was far enough away that mm -hmm. I could see it and it was real and I could imagine, you know, I think it's almost yeah. touchable, isn't it? Because it's similar. Yeah, especially, I mean, that's one of the critical things, right? For so long, we treated dinosaurs as these totally unusual animals that were unlike anything. I think there were a lot of books like 100 years ago that kind of were almost had paleontologists scratching their heads about like, well, how were they so present for so long when there's just these big, weird reptile things? It doesn't make any sense. Mammals are clearly better. It was a bit of sort of mammalian like chauvinism in a sense. And we since thankfully moved beyond that. But it's wonderful how that now we know that dinosaurs are alive, that all birds 
our dinosaurs, the only dinosaurs that we have left, we still lost most of the you know groups and families that were around, but that we can, like you said, get those little glimpses, get those little glimmers. Like when I see um, a red-tailed hawk, if they you know catch a mouse or a smaller bird and they kind of mantle over it with their wings out and they're pinning it down with their claws, that's the way that we think like dinosaurs like Velociraptor and Deinonychus hunted. That there's some of these things that have popped up over and over again. And of course, we don't have a modern day equivalent to something like an Apatosaurus or a Stegosaurus. And dinosaurs were certainly doing some things that we didn't expect or entirely new to us. But I feel like there's just enough of a connection there through all those years that, like you said, we can sort of get these visions. Because when you think about it, like 66 million years, yes, of course, it's a long time. But compared to the age of dinosaurs, that's like almost nothing. That's maybe like a third of as long as like, you know, the Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous lasted. So, you know, it's really like we are still very much like living in the shadow of this Cretaceous world. It's not all that difficult to find these tethers. Even something as simple as like in the neighborhood I live in, uh, some folks have magnolias. And when those bloom in the springtime, it always makes me think of the Cretaceous because there were magnolias. We have magnolias from the Hell Creek Formation where T-Rex and Triceratops are from. So when you look at that plant, it's almost like a little bit of time travel. And how is it? So, you know, we, we have, I mean, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Because you know, we are talking about dinosaurs. Actually, most of the book is not about dinosaurs. It's about what came after the dinosaurs. How, how, how strange was it to switch into that? Because I imagine, you know, for lots of funding and fashion and excitement reasons, yes. dinosaurs get a lot of <laughs> attention, both in the scientific community and outside. And when it comes to the years in between, when, you know, things were getting going again and it perhaps wasn't as interesting if you want big and, you know, big charismatic things. How are, are, the, are the early mammals given enough attention and what was it like to delve into that world? It felt like a bit of a risk. I mean, there's a reason why I opened the book with uh, a Tyrannosaur having a feast. Like I, like, I felt like I needed to give people something, something familiar, something that they're really going to like. And then as the story unfolds, draw them further in um, with some of these unfamiliar cast of characters, like not just mammals, but, you know, birds and snakes. I, I think I focus in on uh, ferns at one point as well. So trying to like think about what does a prehistoric fern experience, like it's a very different kind of headspace, if you can even call it that. Um, it definitely felt like, am I going to lose people by following the thread through. And yet I felt like there was so much to relate to, really. Like I didn't want to anthropomorphize any of these organisms um, to any unreasonable degree. I, it's, it's difficult sometimes, you know, cause it's difficult thinking like, what is somebody else thinking in their head right now? This whole idea of a theory of mind and then trying to do that for another species is incredibly challenging if not impossible. But I wanted to try, I wanted to try and think about how do they experience the world? What, what do they see? And I feel like by doing that, by kind of taking that almost like omniscient narrator role and talking about the motivations and the responses, that there are things that people can relate to. And I felt in the end, like I did really want readers to relate to like that little primate that we basically end the story with and say like, this is something that's connected to us. And they probably had some of the same sort of experiences and concerns or at least senses and stuff that that we do and it made it a little bit easier but it was really challenging it was like there's a one chapter where I read about a little snake during a time period that we don't know a whole lot about like 10,000 years after impact so it was a challenge to think we knew this animal was around we don't know a ton about what's going on at that specific time but we know that something must have so what pieces can I pull together and what sort of experience can I make for this and I think it's that personal thing that 
that makes it more interesting and makes it more engaging. Because if I just did this from like the traditional science writing point of view, and so like, you know, at this time this was happening and this was over here and the climate was changing and just kind of did that like view from the present looking to the past, it's easy to tune out and people are gonna say, why do I care? So I feel like trying to make it personal you know, it, it gives that sense of investment that you really want these creatures to succeed. And it goes back to the dinosaurs for a second, Second, but um, I read a, a section involving Ankylosaurus, who's there for basically the moment of impact, the first hour, and things do not go very well for this dinosaur. I've gotten more comments about that. This poor Ankylosaurus that I felt bad for because I'm bringing these creatures <laughs> into existence. Because you killed it all. <laughs> right, yes. I Basically, I'm bringing this world into existence to then destroy 75% of it. And it does get emotional. And to me, that that lets me know that I hit my mark, that, you know, there even these animals are so, and organisms are so different from us. There are certain things at least that we share because we're all alive. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that connection got made. But I think it's important because I'm always very suspicious of the of the of the easy topic in the way that the topics mm. like the equivalent of charismatic megafauna basically yes. to science right you know mm -hmm. as an ocean person basically i still get asked whether i work on dolphins as though there's yeah. nothing in the ocean except a dolphin right mm -hmm. they're very nice they're lovely octopuses are better um but but there's that thing where you know it's like astronomy gets a lot of mm -hmm. attention and it's kind of the stars again and again and again but because it's yeah. a big sort of awe-inspiring topic and the dinosaurs sometimes i feel are a bit like that like the same yes. things get said and so i i like i, I think it's great that you focused on these other areas because i think there is it's really important that we don't sort of fetishize some things just because they're easy like there are plenty of other stories and yeah. do you think you're going to keep delving into the world after the dinosaurs or are you going to go back to dinosaurs is that is that where you're happiest <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. People think of me as a dinosaur writer. If I had my way, if I could just like, if everything was just as popular as everything else, I would probably write about Cenozoic mammals. So the mammals that came after the impact. For most of my career, I think they're wonderful and they're fascinating. There's so many things I want to know, but dinosaurs basically pay the bills, whether it's <laughs> saying like, this is wonderful, or I wrote a piece for Slate saying that T-Rex is overplayed, that we pay way too much attention to this one dinosaur, and there's so many other things that we could find out. Um, I think there certainly is that problem, and I've tried to, I feel at different times in my career, in different contexts, I've either played that up or critiqued it as well. Um, it's something in terms of what I want to do next. When I'm thinking of for the next book, I would love to do sort of, if I can, a trilogy of these books where I do one on paleobotany because we don't have a good paleobotany book that takes a similar approach, looking at all these wonderful moments that like plants have allowed life on earth to exist as it does from basically putting oxygen to the atmosphere through provi providing the setting for life to come out on land, all these great moments. And one on the oceans as well, because the oceans have fundamentally changed so many times over hundreds of millions of years. And that story also hasn't been told. So I feel like picking some of these moments, these organisms that can tell these things, uh, I'd love to do more of that. I think I think it's resonant. But I will always love dinosaurs as well. And I think that's partially because they're both familiar and strange and people get excited about them. And when you, once you have that base level, yeah, they're popular because they're popular at this point. But if that's the hook that I need to then start to get people to consider, well, what else were they doing? What else was around? That's really what I wanted from this book in particular was not so much about the dinosaurs proper, not as if this is just a skeleton that we're looking at by itself in a museum, but saying that every species is kind of at this intersection of other species, like what it's eating, what's living on it. You know, even us, like we're an ecosystem in and of ourselves, you know, from like the bacteria in our guts to the dust mites that live on our eyelashes. Like there are 
what is a human? Like, well, we can define that in genetic terms or anatomical terms, but we can also define it in ecological terms, in terms of these intersections. And that's really the place where I'm most interested, sort of taking something that's familiar and then starting to spread out from there. Well, I think, I mean, it's one, I think you, you've highlighted one of the reasons that dinosaurs, especially at the moment, are are easy to be excited by and it isn't just the films and the, the big teeth I think it's that the science is changing quickly so I remember going you know when I was a kid there was this one during my dinosaur mad phase there was this exhibition of Chinese dinosaurs that came to the UK and it was a big deal and for, for reasons I do not remember my family agreed to go on holidays I think it was in Cardiff especially sp specifically so I could see this exhibition because it was and then two or two or three or four years ago I went with the BBC back to see the next because there were no more Chinese fossils that came to the UK and then there was another one and this one had um the colors on the tail there's a there's a fossil mm -hmm. of it, it might be an Archaeopteryx of so something like it but it's got colors on the tail and it was basically it was it was the same fossil I think it had been in the previous exhibition but no one had seen it like that you know it'd been completely yeah. reinterpreted basically yeah I mean the dinosaurs that I grew up with so I was born in 1983 so the dinosaurs the late 80s and early 90s were really you know my dinosaurs and in a sense like even before that because a lot of the books I think before Jurassic Park sparked this you know sense of dinomania and really like made dinosaurs super popular again um, a lot of the books that I read initially when I was in grade school were from the 50s and 60s so like I got familiar very much very early on with like the drab tail dragging not very smart very sort of um you know old view of dinosaurs and then that fundamentally changed very quickly and that was exciting and there's nothing that i think a kid loves more than feeling that they know a little bit something more than adults like i think that's part of like whenever i talk to kids about dinosaurs they don't have questions to ask they want to tell me what they know and there's something powerful in that and i think being able to have this like realm this basically this fandom only it's science that you can master and know everything about is certainly an attraction to it and then like in one reason or another many of us drift away from it and then we'll see a familiar animal and it looks fundamentally different and what i love about this is just all the different forms of expressions that we're getting so in the past couple of years there's been um a traveling exhibit based around sue the tyrannosaurus and i got to see that when there's a life-size tyrannosaur model of sue in that in that case they are they don't have any feathers on them they're relatively chunky i like that they were like a heavier set version of t-rex and you know they had this very particular idea the american museum of natural history also put together a traveling exhibit based around tyrannosaurs called t-rex the ultimate predator and their t-rex is bright orange and it has this made of feathers going down its back and its arms are very different it's a bit skinnier so even today like even within a year or two of each other two major institutions made life-size models of this famous dinosaur that we have like the most information about and came up with two very different interpretations. And that's what I kind of love about this is that not only are dinosaurs changing, but I feel like we can get invested in some of these debates. So, you know, that's why like on Twitter all the time, there are arguments about, well, did they have feathers or not? Or did they have lips or not? And all these sorts of things where like, we might not have 100% of the answer. And it just kind of adds a little bit more fuel to that fascination. What, how does all this leave you? You know, when you look, mm -hmm. we're obviously going through a mass extinction at the moment. It's a depressing topic, but it's hard not to connect the two. Um, yeah. And it's a different kind of mass extinction because it isn't all happening on one day, although it is happening very quickly on geological mm -hmm. timescales. Mm -hmm. What does this, I mean, you actually answered this at the start of the book. I'm going to ask you anyway. So what, what does all of this teach us about our current mass extinction or how we should look about it, how look at it and how we should think about it? 
this one is a little bit more complicated because we're directly involved. We're driving so much of it and we have a responsibility because of it. Like we have decisions to, to make and there's so much research now about sort of ecological triage. And some of it involves paleontology, looking to the past to similar moments. For example, um, I went out last summer and going out this summer again to a place in Eastern Utah um, in a time period called the Eocene. So this is you know over 10 million years after impact. And there are climate spikes within those rock layers that have been detected through you know, geochemical evidence and other forms of evidence that pretty much mimic what we're doing right now. So we can come up with an expectation of like, how is life going to respond? Because oftentimes when things get very hot very quickly, life gets smaller, you have extinctions of various sorts, uh, insect damage on plants goes up because insects do much better. So we're trying to sort of look to the fossil record to predict what's coming and then act as a result of it. Um, the one thing, it's one of those things where I don't want to be too fatalistic, but I also don't want to, you know, say, well, everything is fine. It's like we know that life as a whole is going to make it through, that life is, is going to find a way, that the world is fundamentally changing, but life on Earth is not going to be entirely extinguished. But we are going to lose a lot, and a lot is going to shift. In a lot of ways, we don't even have a great baseline, because so many of the big animals, or at least, you know, important animals that were around, you know, even 8,000 years ago, things like mastodons and saber-toothed cats and giant sloths are gone. And if you look at this in the geologic record, if you were to go like 10 million years in the future and then look back at this present moment, you know, people might think that we rode mammoths to work. It's, they're going to be so close in, in time. But I think it's important to there remember is a that. great there is a yeah. great statistic there is a I'm sorry to interrupt there's a great yeah. factoid on that which is I think that the last mammoths which were somewhere in North Siberia were alive yes. at the same time as the pyramids were being built, yes. which is just you know that's like it's that close it's that yeah. close and yet it's so far away. Yeah, things that we have like cave paintings of mammoths that people saw them alive and like had thoughts and ideas and relationships with these animals. Um, and yet there's so much about them that we don't understand because that knowledge was lost in one way or another. So like it's tangible and not at the same time. And it's like this almost infuriating drive. It's like, like we have to be able to understand this. They were so close to us. But I think like as much of a call to action as we currently have, and we certainly do, there's so much that we need to change so quickly. I think it is also important to remember that sense that life is resilient, that if we take those steps, that life is going to come back, that the damage is not 100% permanent or irreversible, that you know we really have to take responsibility for what we're doing, and then life is going to be able to respond to that and maybe move in new directions. We can never recover entirely what we lost. Um, I have many thoughts about de-extinction and why it's probably not <laughs> gonna work for various reasons, but it's those two things together. There's that sort of somber recognition of what we're doing and what it's causing, but that we know that life has come back from worse. And I feel like I would like to think that we're at that turning point. I think, yeah, recognizing how, because actually, in a way, what I took from this was kind of the opposite, which is how easy it is to lose things. Mm. And I guess that's the point is there's lots of different ways of looking at it. But it's also, yeah. as well as being robust, life is fragile. Like, you know, in our current extinction, the jellyfish are going to do very, very well. So maybe the next civilization will be the jellyfish, the age of the jellyfish. I don't know. But, um, but it's so like just one, it doesn't take very much to, to finish an organism off. And yet, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of, it's a bit of one, the bit of the other, just enough to keep it interesting. Yeah, I mean, and that's the history of life, really. It's like so much is about variability, like even like evolution 
occurs because of differences in mutations and variations between organisms and their behaviors or their anatomy or resistance to diseases or what have you. And that life is constantly in motion. I feel like we don't live on a time scale that lets us see a lot of these things. We can certainly detect it. Um, there's a paper out just recently about how often, in some cases, evolution is happening much faster than we previously would have expected. Um, and this is that you can observe it on the scale of, you know, a decade or 20 years or what have you. Um, but a lot of this, it's, yeah, every, it feels like everything is just constantly being smushed around in a sense. Like it can feel very chaotic when you start to understand that there are all these little relationships and changes that you might not perceive unless you take the time to perceive them. And that's really like whatever interpretation I guess people come away from with the book. Like that's what I hope for is that it kind of gives them another lens to look at the world through and to say like take that moment and actually look and think about the threads that connect these things together that like right now I can look out my window and I can see a maple tree across the street and it's not just a tree that's an entire ecosystem lots of other things living in it and things that come and go and it changes through the seasons and I can take any one of those points and start spinning that off into other ideas and relationships and it's this whole other lens so really it's like an encouragement to just like stop for a moment you know put down the phone for a second and just look and follow those threads wherever they're going to take you and it changes the way that you look at the world well, that is a very beautiful place to finish, which is just as well because we're out of time. So uh, the book is Last Days of the Last the Last Days of the Dinosaurs by Riley Black. I highly recommend it. Riley, thank you so much for speaking to me. Um, for our uh, Cosmic Shambles supporters, uh, do look at the Cosmic Shambles website. We're out and about doing live events over the summer. Supporters on Patreon if you can. And uh, that's it for Book Shambles today. So goodbye. Okay, great. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks to Helen and to Riley. Her book is out now, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Go check that out. It is a great read. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles to get access to Josie's live show, extended episodes and all the other stuff. We'll be back next week with another new episode, which will in all likelihood be Robin chatting to the brilliant writer, filmmaker and performer, Sarah Polly. Until then, take care, stay safe and bye for now. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.